0: Uh, this is it. This is our last uh, build for the year. And, um, and for, I just want to thank you guys first just for being faithful, coming, and, and for committing yourself to um, uh, just the whole year and what we're trying to do. I think um, it's it's just encouraging to your elders, I know, to see men who are committed to wanting to be godly men, wanting to be men who... Um, thinking about their homes and the people they live with and uh, who want to be well-equipped for ministry in the church. And um, I mean, what more could an elder ask for? I mean, you just, that's uh, very encouraging. This morning, Smed is going to come in about 7 o'clock, a little over 10 minutes or so, or around there. And uh, he's going to talk about H3 next year, and we'll be here for just a little bit, and then he's going to um, take off and be back home. So, um, anyway, it, what we're going to do between now and then is I want to I want to one more time, want to walk through all of the disciplines. So, if you turn your notebook over on the back and uh, think about these things, this is needs to become the the mantra of your life, so to speak, um, in a small small way. Um, but, but your life as a man of God begins with you shepherding your heart. Because of the work of Christ in your life, you would never think to shepherd your heart without Christ having done his saving work in your life. So the the, the foundational work that you need to do in response to the work of Christ in your life is to shepherd your heart. Um, you must bring your heart to God in the word of God in order to meet with him, to worship him, to figure out um, how to express your love for him uh, to be obedient to him, um, this is where it all begins. I mean, in many ways, this is the this is the pool, this is the fountain out of which everything else depends and is fed and is watered in your life. If you turn this off and let it dry up, you don't have a whole lot of anything else to be and to offer anybody in this world. Um, you were dry. You were empty. You were hard, untouched ground before Christ. Um, God has come. He has given you a soft heart. He has made you into a, a new creature. And he is giving you his word. And as a spiritual discipline, your desire now in Christ is to come. I'm telling you what it is because this is what he does in a new creation. Your desire now is to come to his word, to be fed, fed, to just meet with God. You want nearness to your God. Um, and this is where it all begins, guys, uh, that you would be able to say what the psalmist, the nearness of God is my good. Um, my soul pants after thee, O God. Um, that's what you want. That's what you must have. That man who does that, who is that way, when that guy steps into other people's lives, There are eternal benefits and work and and fruit that come from that. Um, And that leads us into the second discipline, the home. The first place that you must make an impact on is the place you live. Um, And even if you live by yourself, um, not married, live on your own, your home needs to be a place of refuge that others, that God is working in, when they come to your home, they're like, the gospel is here. The word of God is here. The God of the word is here because this man is a man of God who loves the word and, and that's what you want. You want your home to be that kind of place. You want the people who come under your leadership in your home to to, uh, to flourish spiritually in the gospel and in the word of God in your home. Um, if you're a, a, a son under your parents in your home, it's time to, to come to dad and say, Dad, I want, I want a piece of this. I want to be a part of um, helping you do this in the home. W- what do you think would be a, a, a way that I can serve in that capacity in this home? I, I want to be a man of God who is a bringing benefit to others in this house and um, it's time to be that kind of man. It is far too easy for men to do what we call leapfrogging, right? To leapfrog our own hearts, to get to other people. <clears throat> um, it's too easy to leapfrog our homes to get out into ministry in the church and beyond the church. Uh, if you take away the heart and you take away a home, if the heart is dry and the house is crumbling, it doesn't matter what you say to anybody. Somebody's going to find it out and find you to be a double-minded man, a, a hypocrite, and your ministry will have no integrity. The third discipline, obviously, then, is the ministry. As you are working on these things, you are ready to step into the lives of other people. And you must step into the lives of other people. Um, In fact, we find that in the fourth discipline um, on on the qualifications, that as you look at the qualifications for elder and deacon, again, most of those qualifications are found in the arenas of your heart before God and your home. What kind of a man is he before God in his character, and what is he like in his home? What are the people like? What do they find his leadership and his presence to be like in the home? That's where qualified leadership comes from. So if you have an aspiration in your mind that you want to be a preacher, that you want to be a teacher, you want to be a leader in the church, you can't miss your heart and your home. The first places to focus are on the heart and the home. And this is part of why we wait until the very end of the year of Build to even talk about hermeneutics. Because it would seem, I want to be a teacher, I want to be a preacher of God's Word. Well, let's get interpretation methods down. No. Let's be the right kind of men first. And then the right kind of man armed with hermeneutics, oh my goodness, watch out. It's a tiger, unleashed, ready to go. An unqualified man, playing leapfrog over his heart and his his home, given the Bible to teach others, God have mercy on the church. Um... So qualifications, discipline four. Discipline five is the one that we're in, um, the hermeneutic, where we're talking. We spent uh, more time this year on on this than any any other year in the past because I I really want to beef this up as a uh, broaden the the platform a little bit for you to stand on. So as you prepare to go to H3, you've got a little bit more under you. um, And we're talking about that. We're going to be this morning talking about the primary way that we want to approach our Bibles and that is in a forward fashion. We want to read the Bible forward. Start at the beginning and read forward. Interpret key passages with the idea, keeping in mind that there are passages before this one in, my, uh, in the Bible and there are passages that follow this one. Where does this one sit in line with all the rest of them? We'll talk about that more. And then you are not a, a godly man trying to become a godly man just anywhere out there in the world at other churches, but you are a godly man um Seeking all of that at Grace Bible Church, and so you need to know what our vision and our purpose is all about as a church. And so that's the basics of what build is. When you meet with other men in the church, or when you meet with unbelievers, you know how to counsel men. You do. The first thing that you talk about with one another is how is your heart? What's going on at the heart level with you and God? And in particular, with his word. That's where it all begins. Talk to me about that. Share with me what, how it's going. What's your time in the word look like? You know where things to begin. Because when we get our lives out of shape and when things begin to evaporate, we know where it all starts and where, where the foundation is. It's back at the heart. And you know where to focus on in terms of relationships. How's it going with those in your home? How are your kids doing? Under your leadership, how's your wife responding to your 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 shepherding care and love? Um, you know what to say. I just encourage you guys, exhort you guys in this body, have those conversations with everybody, your elders and everybody. Don't think that your elders. I mean, look, we're constantly working on this, like you are. You have this conversation with everybody. The men of this church talk to one another, must talk to one another, must care for one another. In regards to our hearts, our homes, and gospel ministry, this is just what we do. Our church needs to be flooded with us. New men and visitors coming into the church need to hear this from you. Not just from leadership, but from you. Um, that's who we are. okay? And we are trusting that God will build up this volcano. And that it will erupt with men who are qualified for ministry. And churches will be planted. Missionaries will be Kicked out of this church and sent to the other side of the world, and uh, that would be pretty exciting to see. So, with that in mind, that's what build is all about. And so, um, Smed has made his entrance. Thanks, man. Come on up and talk to the guys about um, H3, and um, take as much time as you want.
1: Okay. Thanks. Good
2: morning, man. Scott, have you talked to the guys here about 2 Timothy 2 2? I'm not sure
0: we have. It'd be very appropriate if you did. Yes, sir. Dr. O'Neill.
2: Thank you. Okay. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. Good. Sometimes when I raise my voice, it sounds like I'm angry. It doesn't matter. Okay, good. Angry's okay? Yeah. Uh, have you talked to them about Second Timothy two too?
0: I don't. I don't think. I don't remember we did it. Okay, it'd be very appropriate to touch.
2: Um, if you guys could just open your Bibles and and look at that with me for a moment. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is a sort of passing of the baton from one godly man to another godly man, recognizing, uh, as uh, Josh Miles once said, that our goal is not to be a legend, but to leave a legacy. Um, there is a goal beyond our current generation uh, did he steal that why are you laughing did he make that up or did he no. steal it yeah, yeah,
1: yeah you made it
0: up <laughs> did you make that up or
2: did he steal it <laughs> wait a
0: minute I didn't hear it do you guys
2: need to step outside and just <laughs> 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 no. I never heard of it before it's a good quote isn't it? <laughs> you gotta hang out with that guy sometime <laughs> um <laughs> But there's something very, very important about what Paul is instructing Timothy to do. Paul has handed things to Timothy that Paul expects Timothy to hand to others. Timothy's job is not to innovate, Timothy's job is not to come up with something new. Uh, the job of faithful men in ministry is not to come up with a new way to reach a new generation with new information and new ideas and new ways of doing ministry. Getting, to, getting into a cycle of fads, that's just not the task. The task of a faithful man is to pass on faithfully the same old things. And I'll tell you, it's very tempting in ministry to try to come up with something new for a lot of different reasons. Maybe doing the same old things is hard And the ground is hard of people's hearts, and people are unreceptive. And so you go, man, I need new ways to plow hard ground. So let me get something else. Or personal pride creeps in, and you say, I can make a name for myself if I'm not just doing the same old things, but if I'm doing something different. And both of those things are suicidal When it comes to faithful ministry and upholding God's word. And it is very, very important that we as a church, that we as leaders in this church, equip men with these things. With these things that we heard from others. That they 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 they got from Timothy. That Timothy got from Paul. That Paul got from Jesus. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to hand on. And what I want to stress to you men this morning is to whom we entrust these things. Look with me at verse 2. The things which you've heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. Entrust these to faithful men. He doesn't say, spend your time investing theological truth in everybody. He says, faithful men. And there's a so that here. So that they will be able to teach others also. We do not want to equip teachers. This is what Scott was just saying. We do not want to equip teachers that are unqualified. The goal is not to invest theological truth to men who are playing leapfrog over their hearts and their homes. Woe to the church that does such things. But entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice the the time elements in these verses. Um, entrust these things to men who currently are faithful so that they will be able to teach. It's important. The goal of leadership development at Grace Bible Church is not, man, who can articulate stuff good? Which I just did not do. Um, <laughs> who, who, ha, who has a presence? Who's a leader? There's so many churches you know, ascertain whether or not somebody should be a leader in the church based on whether or not they're a leader in the business world or the sports world or the entertainment world. Man, that, that guy has a presence and people follow them. They're funny. Type A personality or whatever. That's not what Paul tells Timothy to invest in. Faithful men. We want to equip men to be teachers who will be able to teach others also who already are faithful with their own hearts and faithful in their homes. And so that's where H3 fits in. Um, Build really is designed to equip you men to be faithful men. And so you hear the same things again and again and again. We want to reinforce those same things when you get to H3. H3 stands for heart, head, and hands. And what's behind that heart is the reinforcing of the build disciplines. And so for nine months, meeting every week, uh, we want to reinforce the things that you've had here. Head stands for information. Uh, It stands for theological knowledge. And we will systematically go through the major categories of theology. Over the course of nine months, we'll study anthropology, homardiology, angelology, uh, all theologies. Um, the The idea is not only that you get a an overview of the different categories of theology that your Bible discusses, but that you get an overview of what the elders believe at Grace Bible Church. It's an introduction to how the elders handle the Word of God, how the elders do theology and the conclusions that we come to and the convictions that we hold. And so we'll spend a year studying the various areas of theology. And then hands really has to do with equipping the men in H3 to be teachers, to be faithful communicators of God's Word, men who will handle God's Word well in the lives of other people, men who will be disciples, men who will be small group leaders, men who aspire to be elders, pastors, pastors, Men who aspire to be missionaries. Men who aspire to be effective fathers and husbands in their home with the Word of God. And so the the third aspect of what we do after working on our hearts and character, working on our theology, is working on our hermeneutics and homiletics. Hermeneutics is the principles used to study God's Word. Homiletics is after you've studied, putting all those things together into a message. And so every guy will, at the end of the nine months preach a message, a 20-minute sermon. The first year, I didn't tell the guys they were going to be doing that because they wouldn't have showed up. Some of them, a lot of them. In fact, many of the men said, listen, if you had told me we were going to preach a sermon at the end of this, I wouldn't have been here. Um, and so I just want you to not be scared by that. Every man has survived. Um, and it's uh, it's it's been really, really fun.
0: And you walk with them week after week after week through the whole process.
2: Yeah, basically, you spend nine months, prepa- well, you spend about seven months preparing a 20 minute sermon. And a lot of guys think, man, 20 minutes? How can I get up and talk about the Bible for 20 minutes? And invariably, every man at the end of H3 says, how am I going to get all this information into 20 minutes? And John MacArthur talks about his own preaching this way he says, I, I, I study a bucket full. I prepare a cup full, uh, people hear a thimble full, and they spill it on the way out the door. And next week you go back and start all over again and, and do it over. That's really been true for the guys in H3. Uh, as we walk through all the steps of sermon preparation, um, they find I've got way too much information to fit into 20 minutes. And yet we have a timer, and the timer goes off, and you know you're done. And we have to tell people to stop. It's great. Um, the, I think that the, one of the most exciting things, well, probably the highlight for my year every year, has been when the guys preach to me. And it's just been thrilling. You guys who have been in H three can attest to those are some of the best sermons you ever hear. Uh, these guys have the time to, to let the Word of God soak in their hearts. And uh, we do we do a lot of things to prepare for that and just walk through a step-by-step process of... How do I study God's word, hermeneutics, and then how do I put that together into a sermon? So um, in a nutshell, that's what H3 is. We, we want to equip men to handle the word of God well, to know how to study it, uh, to know the, the, the theology of this church, and we want to teach you men how to do theology. Uh, the, the way to do theology is not first to pick up a theology textbook or uh, some theological topic on a, from a certain book and say, okay... That theology I like because I like the guy who's saying it, or um, I would prefer that system to be true, so I'm going to latch on to that theology or that theology. Uh, But really, we want our theology to be grounded in what God means by what he says in his word. And a consistent approach to the word of God is what should produce our theology. And so even the way we do theology, we really want to be grounded in our hermeneutic. And so those are the things we try to work through over the course of about nine months. Josh? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, we've had about 20 uh, three years in a row um, and usually finish with 16, 17 guys. So, yeah, I'm looking around. There are quite a few guys in here who have gone through it. So Josh, Omri, Tyler. Who am I missing? Eric. Yeah. You guys want to say anything about each three?
3: Do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super normal. So, uh, <clears throat> I, I think after walking through that process of running a breach, like, I have an appreciation for what God has meant to do. And, and I, like, I sit there in church and it's like, what text <laughs> 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 like, They just said what the text said, and I don't know. It it, it, helped me to not put me on a pedestal, but to really hold God's word high and appreciate God Mm who did it.
2: Praise God! That you know that's the highest compliment someone handling the word of God could ever get. Is not, and that guy's a great preacher. But I saw that in the text. That's that's a good goal. That's what you want when you teach.
0: Do you guys have any questions that you want to ask about it? When is
2: it? <laughs> we'll start in what? yeah so we start, start in September and uh, about a month ahead of September um, all the guys that, that are interested that the elders invite um, it's sort of uh, a combination of you expressing interest and the elders inviting you into that process um, uh, not everybody should do h3 it's not for everybody um, there's a, there's something of a commitment there it's the expectation is you'd be there every week uh, I I'm shocked that 20 guys, three years in a row, have wanted to commit every week to an early morning uh, for something like this. Um, It's not for everybody. Um, This last year we did it on Saturday mornings. Uh, In previous years um, we've done it on weekday mornings, uh, like at 6. And uh, every week, that can be tough. And um, basically what we do after we figure out who wants to be involved, uh, I'll ask all the guys, when can you meet, when would you prefer to meet? And we just settle on what what is the best for the most.
3: And then how long
2: do you mean? Uh, on the schedule, it's an hour and a half. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe it used to say two hours.
2: It does. It really. I think that's one change we'll make this year is just put it on the schedule for two hours.
0: And it's every week. Yeah, that's different than Bill. And um, you know the. I wish that we would have been uh, could say years ago <laughs> we read Second Timothy two and saw that it said that faithful men are the ones who will be able to teach. You know what we need to do first, we should think of a way to try to go after men to help them become faithful. Let's design something like Bill. You no, know, we just did Bill. And then we he came into my office with Josh Kelso mm. because of his Greek classes on <laughs> and pointed this out when he just talked about 2 Timothy 2 and he said praise God that he was so gracious to the church to give us a ministry that already is working on just be a faithful man just be a godly man and um, that's just proof that God loves His church and he's wiser than the elders of this church and he is looking out for the interests of this church so what we ask for is you to be faithful to a year of building you know do attend and when you do homework do it well um and because we kind of keep track of all that, and, and then if you have an interest in doing H3, we go and we look, and we examine, and we talk to small group leaders of guys here, and, and we say, what do you think? And yeah, I think that'd be good. Um, there's been some guys I've asked to do build, do build again because of the amount of time that they were able to get or, or not get, and um, so. There's also been guys here yeah. Yeah, and there's guys who have, who have, that's a great point, who have said, I haven't graduated yet, yeah. it's been six years. Yeah. <laughs> um, who, who have said, yeah, you know, before I do H3, I want to go again," and they have, and um, that's been very encouraging, um, guys who just want to make sure that they're really thinking carefully about their lives, and if their lives are going in the right direction, and um, those are the kind of men then that, who have been faithful to and building, and demonstrate that, but man, Please do H three if you can. If you've got the way
1: and the means to do it, please do it. <coughs> anything
0: else? Any other questions, guys? No. Tom, do you have anything? Or Scott? Or
1: Eric? Or... No. Right. No. Nice. Sure, okay. All right. Great.
3: All right, well,
0: it is time for us to tackle our last assignment together. So let's do that. Take out your handout. We'll talk about hermeneutics one more time, where we are going to address the rules for interpretation. Much of what today's message is our lesson is, guys, is an it's going to be an it's going to be laying out some more things, explaining some things about how we at Grace Bible Church think you should view the Word of God and handle it and interpret it. But then um, there's going to be a whole portion of it where we're going to actually apply it. Okay, I'm going to walk you through um, a way to think about um, a certain subject, and then this morning will be the Sabbath. Um, So what I want to do is, um, before we even look any further and do anything else, we should pray.
2: So uh, let's do that together. Can we pray, guys? Heavenly Father, we uh, just come before you to acknowledge
0: our need for you this morning. Father, we were men who were very wearied and worn out by our slavery to our sin. We thought that we would find joy and peace and rest in living for ourselves and carrying out every desire of the flesh. And we only found that we were crumbling under the weight of that um, sin, that we were weary and heavy laden. And by your grace in our lives, you came into our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You opened our ears to hear your voice say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we found um, salvation in you. You brought it to us. We weren't looking for it. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to our various lusts. We were engaging in evil deeds. We had hostile minds towards you. But you came, you softened our hearts, you began to make it clear to us that we were wearied under that life, lived apart from Jesus, and you drew us to yourself. We realized we were weary and heavy laden. We saw your rest in the gospel, in the cross of your son, Jesus, and we were given the gifts of faith and repentance, Lord. We. Worship you this morning because of who you are and what you have done, what you have made us into as men uh, who are resting in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to see um, this way of interpreting your Bible that lets your words speak most clearly for itself. So God, please be with us. Make our hearts soft. Make them teachable build us up in this Father I thank you just for these men Lord the the great encouragement that they are to the elders I know their faithfulness to you their faithfulness to this um, developing ministry this ministry that develops them Lord I pray that you would bear much much fruit in their lives for your, your namesake so that Jesus is seen to be the great savior that he is in their lives and in their families God bless them in their pursuit of you and bless our time together this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Here we are, page one. We're going to run like the wind. Okay, here we go. And as usual, make yourself at home. Up, Get up and down whenever you want. And if you've got a question or you need some clarification, don't hesitate to uh, throw it out there, okay? All right. We have to have a reminder here at the beginning to not forget the basics. What do we mean by this? Uh, in this read it forward, as we are trying to understand the nature of progressive revelation, all that means is that God started writing his Bible with these pages over here, and he wrote it in a progressive fashion. He didn't unload everything right here, but he unloaded it in bits and pieces along the way. It is a progressive revelation from God, and we should read it with that in mind. We should interpret it. With that in mind. That's the way he put it together. Our hermeneutic, our approach to it, should reflect that. That's what we're saying. Read it forward. Now, keeping that in mind, um, the basics are this. Guys, we are transformed by God's grace in the gospel to become men who love him. That's That's what he has done with his transforming grace in your life. You love God. You love Jesus Christ now. When you used to hate Him. And what your soul was made for, who it was made for, Jesus Christ. What you need more than anything is you need Jesus and you want to express your love for Him. You are meant to worship Him and obey Him. And He has made this book central to all of that. You cannot develop a love relationship with God, you cannot express obedience to God, your worship of God will be diminished if you don't have this. This is the means that is between you and your God and you must come to Him through this because this is where He reveals Himself. So, what kind of an interpretation method should you have of this? You do not want one that clouds the meaning of it, that confuses it, That distorts the true meaning in the text. You want an interpretation that just unlocks and unleashes what is there in all of its glory and all of its goodness. And so that is why we want to be interpreters of God's word. Because we must have God. We want God. We want to worship Him. We want to express our love for Him. We want to obey Him. Tell me what this says. Okay, Tom. So because men didn't, uh, especially a Hebrew mind doesn't necessarily interested in that. It has to all be chronological. Um, that was the way God in his providence uh, arranged it to be. Um, elements of it being chronological but not um, arranged in. this was written first, this was written second. God didn't have to evidently God didn't see a need that the only way that he could be understood is if the first things written first came first in the Bible um, but that the order that he has it um, is primarily chronological in many ways but not strictly and solely chronological and we in in, in our minds we are very chronological time oriented this first then that this first then next and that and that and that and so forth and um, God just didn't see fit to do it that way. I, I don't have a better answer. Do you guys have a thought as to why? <laughs> Other than that's just what God did? I don't know. That's a good question. We can ask him someday when we see him. We won't care, I'm sure. We, at then we'll be like, you know what? I got this question. I know the answer already, but I, what do you think? What, why do you do it? Yeah. Yes? It is arranged in such a way, though, that certain things that God would reveal
1: weren't revealed first. You know, like, he did not go backwards in his revelation, so yeah. it's chronological enough where, yeah. you know, it's still unfolding.
0: It's uh, true. Of That's a great point, and Joey can speak uh, all week long about um, the, the, the method for teaching the Bible and, and translating the Bible to people who don't have it. Uh, you guys started with Genesis 1, and uh, worked through, you, you understand progressive revelation. Um, praise God for that element of New Tribes' ministry and, and the way that they have been committed to that. I can remember the first time I heard that, that I was in a seminary. And uh, a guy who was with New Tribes came to a, a chapel and talked about, we, you know, we started in Genesis 1. And I can remember going, you know, lose people. <laughs> And I was just my immaturity. I mean, just not understanding. But it's um, you not know, with Jesus. I mean, what's wrong with Jesus? You know? <laughs> foolish, foolish, foolish. That's, i tell you. Guys who are self-appointed to ministry, going to seminary, dangerous. Dangerous. Is God gracious in that? Yeah. But just because he's gracious in it doesn't mean it's a good plan. All right, let's talk about the whole, the pieces, and interpretation. What we mean by that is the whole Bible, the pieces, and how should we interpret it, okay? The one author of the one book wrote um, his one primary message to communicate in his book. He has one primary message he wants to get out. But the way that God assembled his book was through um, two big chunks, Old Testament and New Testament, Okay? He broke it down that way. And then each of those is comprised of many human authors writing many narrative, many poetry, many prophetic, many teaching sections with countless paragraphs, countless exhortations, countless instructions. So God obviously is thinking, I, have, I want to communicate me one message, but man, I've got a whole bunch of pieces in which I'm going to do that. Now, I have a whole host of questions that we're going to look at here, and we're going to come back to them as well. So the question is this. What is the relationship between the message of the whole and the two testaments? This is, a, this is something that's just baffled men for centuries, ever since the Bible's been put together. What's the relationship between the one message and the two testaments, Old Testament and New Testament? What is the relationship between the message of the whole and the specific meaning of Pieces. Okay, so how about this piece right here that I colored blue? Let's say it's in the history section of the Old Testament, First Kings, something. Okay, um, what's the relationship between it and the one message of the Bible? you have got to have an answer for that. We need an answer to that question. If the plethora of individual texts from the Old Testament through the Newer Testament helps assemble this one message, guys, up here, well then, the question to ask yourself is, how much then is this one piece weighted with the whole? Do you understand that question? Okay? If the message of the Bible might be summed up with, as being Christ, it's about Christ, it's about God, right? That would be one way to sum it up. If the one message of the Bible is summed up as in Christ... How is then he related to each text? Because this has been a a thing that divides theologians everywhere. Is Christ, the one message of the Bible, is he in every single passage? Every single text. Some would say, the way that because the Bible is about Christ, he is in every single passage. That's the way that you hold your Bible together. Is that... Each piece is weighted the same with the one message. So, Rahab hangs her red cord out the wall of Jericho. And because Christ is in every passage, the cord is red. And it's red for a reason. It's about his blood. And it's a symbol of... It helps us understand spiritually that the blood must be shed if you're going to be saved from destruction. You see, that's how... now there are better ways of handling text and seeing Christ even in the Old Testament. And, and you can see Christ in the Old Testament, no doubt about it. Um, but see, this is a very important question to answer well in your mind because it will, it will, it will impact the way you interpret your Bible. You'll come to Old Testament texts, and if you believe that every single passage must be weighted exactly the same with Christ, you'll find yourself doing things with the text that maybe that text... Doesn't say. Okay, we're, we're going to walk through this. Um, my question is: Is this the way? Uh, is this way to Christ in the Bible the way with the most integrity that does proper justice to each individual text, or is there a better way? And that's what we want to talk about. You have a diagram down at the bottom of that page. Now, your, your second page. I want you to go to next. It's not on the back. I had cast not photocopied on the back because I want you to be able to look at page two and this one at the same time with the diagram, okay? So, page two. As you approach the Bible to rightly interpret it, you must strive to hold these two elements in proper relationship and tension with one another. Okay, everybody has to do this. You have to hold these two things in tension. Number one, the unified message of the whole Bible. Okay, you can't read your Bible and not come to a conclusion about Christ. If you're going to preach a message from any passage in the Bible, as a Christian today, knowing what you know from the Bible, your message better be about Jesus Christ. Number two, though, the unique meaning of individual texts needs to be held in tension with that. How do we hold these two elements in proper relationship? The prevailing tendency of many interpreters of the Bible is to actually override the second element in favor of heavily accenting the first. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying there? We're going to override the fact that there are unique, distinct texts one after the other through the Bible. i got to override that with the fact that it's just all about Christ. That's the accent. That gets the emphasis. So I'm putting the accent on that. And so I don't know exactly the, why some passages look different from each other. But, but it's all about Christ. And um, I have to be very careful about that. I think there's a sense in which We feel safer. We feel safer when we just constantly emphasize, there's just one message, Jesus. It's about Christ. It's about God. I think we feel safer saying that, and we end up ignoring what each individual text says. We don't feel as safe when we're maybe teaching one text, and it might sound like it says something completely different. I mean, let's face it. You can be in the Old Testament and be teaching from a section about don't eat this, don't touch that, don't eat this, and don't touch that, and then you come over to, you guys, I'll flip it backwards, you're in your Old Testament, over here, and it says don't eat, don't taste, don't touch, don't this, and then you come over here and you read a passage in Mark 7 that says, and thus he declared all foods clean. I mean, I, that's a contradiction. Some, but he's telling them to do something that he told them not to do over there. I, these are distinct. These, how do you harmonize those two? You have to have a good, uh, a good way of handling those differences in text. Do you just erase the first one? Do you take the second one and do you override it and push it all down and squash it down into this one? Do you take this one and bring it all the way over here to what he said and say, well, he doesn't mean that what do you actually because you know there are still some you know you do you try to equal them level them both out so they both say the same thing they actually say very different things. How are you going to deal with that? and how does that relate to the one big message of the Bible Jesus Christ? I have to have a good answer for that So when you get it please let me know and we'll, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I think we have a way that we can work on that together. Number one, what, what should we strive for as we interpret the Bible? Number one, begin with the meaning of individual text in order to move toward the message of the whole Bible. Guys, when was the last time you got a book, an R.C. Sproul book, a, a John Piper book? When was the last time you grabbed one of those books and just were able to go, boom, I know it all. I know what this whole book is about. The only way you understand what any book says is you go to page one, and you soak that page in, and you soak that chapter in, and you soak that paragraph in. The only way you can understand what a whole book is about, you can read the title, and it'll give you a hint towards the whole thing, but the only way you're going to grasp the whole thing is by taking one piece at a time and start eating it, right? The Bible's no different. It's no different. Take a bite. Start at the beginning and take a bite, okay? Okay? How can you understand the whole message of a book all at once? You can't. You have to take it piece by piece. Number two. And by the way, these are not like sequentially, necessarily rigidly sequential, like, but, but these are just things you want to keep in mind all at the same time. Number two. Let the order or progression of, relation, uh, of Revelation guide you. Read or, and interpret text in a forward fashion. Be mindful of the progressive nature of Revelation. God did not unfold everything at the beginning, but he did unfold his mind and being in successive steps. The mind of God as he wanted to reveal it to us is found here. The things revealed belong to the sons of men. The secret things belong to God. This is what he revealed to us. This is his mind. He didn't take all of it and dump it into this piece right here. He didn't take all of it and dump it into this piece here. He decided to reveal his whole mind and his counsel, what he is and who he is and what he's doing, in pieces along the way. And he constructed it in an order. So read forward. okay? We'll talk about why we're putting an emphasis on reading it forward here as we go through. Number three, be mindful of where individual texts sit in that progressive revelation. You've got to pay attention to where it sits in Redemptive History. You've got to pay attention to what kind of genre it is. genre is just category of of literature. You need to pay attention to that. Um, Is it sitting in the Old Testament or in the New Testament chunk? Is it sitting in the law, the prophets, the history, wisdom, gospels, acts, epistles? Pay attention to its historical context. Um, When the writer is writing and he says you, he doesn't mean necessarily you. If you read somebody else's letter... If you read a letter from Winston Churchill to Roosevelt, and Churchill says you need to blah blah blah, you don't read that and go, "Oh my goodness, I got to go do that right now." You have to understand who it's written to, take it in its historical context, understand where it's at first, pay attention where it falls on the line in the Bible. Fourthly, properly isolate. Will you please underline the word "properly," because you can in wrong ways, isolate. Properly isolate. I would say number four here is probably the the key um, for the way that we think the Bible should be interpreted. Properly isolate your individual text in such a way that allows you to hear most clearly its specific meaning more than the meaning of another passage or the message of the whole Bible. Now, Before you pick up any stones and start throwing them, just be patient and just listen to this, okay? I'm going to read that sentence again. Properly isolate the individual text you're in, in such a way that it allows you to hear most clearly its specific meaning. And you need to, for a moment, be able to hear its meaning more than you hear any other passage around it. If you want to understand this one, you need to listen to it in a way so that it can speak its fullness to you without the influence of other texts on you yet. And without letting the whole message of the Bible come in and infect it yet. Okay, it's related. It's all related. But properly, for a moment, isolate the one text. Trust the author of the Bible who put the pieces together? He did not construct his Bible in such a way that if you sit and you listen to one piece of the Bible in such a way that you just dig into it and you want to hear what it says. He didn't construct it in such a way that if you walk away with that, it's going to blow everything else up that he put together. It's not going to undo the whole message of the Bible, it's not going to contradict another passage of the Bible. Listen to this one, let it speak. Letting one piece speak for itself in its own setting will not do violence to the one message of the Bible the author wants to communicate. Momentarily suspend the meanings of other texts. This is what I mean by properly isolate. Momentarily, not asking and saying, do this forever. Pay attention to one part of the Bible and never listen to anything else. But where we run into trouble is our primary method of Bible study has primarily been we open a passage And we say, oh, goodness, what does that mean? Oh, look, there's some verses on the side column of my Bible. Oh, great, let me just leave that passage and find out what that means. Oh, here, oh, I know what it means. That's terrible. Guys, that's terrible. Because what you just did is you just said the one passage, what has more authority in understanding the one context is actually another context. God didn't write his word that way. You can get the meaning of the one context by staying there. But see, we're not used to that. We run all over the place. We study the, the Bible and we run all over the place in our explanations from the Bible about what the one passage means. Now, what's good about that? What's good about that is at some point in your study and in your teaching, you must pull it all together. You need to keep in mind that it does sit all together. It's just you don't do it at that part. Okay. Momentarily, properly isolate your passage. Just in your mind, for a moment, build a little imaginary wall in your mind that doesn't let you leave your passage. I, I can't get out of here. I want to run to this other passage because I, I. No, not yet. Just not yet. You're going to. Just not yet. Stay there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Part A under four. The passage that has the most authority concerning its meaning is the immediate passage you are interpreting. Guys, that's huge. There is no other passage that has more authority on the one that you're interpreting than the one you're in. Stay there. We just—it's hard for us to stay in a passage. Just stay there. B. Another passage and putting it in the negative. Another passage does not have more authority over the passage you are currently interpreting, although it does have some complementary bearing. And see, be very careful to not override the specific meaning of an Old Testament text with a later message of the New Testament or meaning of a New Testament text. Would you override the meaning of a New Testament text with the prior message of the New Testament or meaning of an Old Testament text? We actually do this. When we are reading in Paul and he says law, do you know what we do? <coughs> oftentimes we just automatically assume he's talking about what? Mosaic law. He might be. He might be talking about Mosaic law. He might not be. He may just be talking about law principle, the principle of living by God's law, and he just used the word that is totally acceptable in doing so. There are times we take a New Testament passage for you over here on this side, a New Testament passage where Paul says, law and we override into it Mosaic law. You see, Mosaic law is a part of the Christian life. Well, just as we shouldn't do that, you shouldn't also read your Old Testament and push a New Testament meaning back into an Old Testament if it's not there. We're going to get to the whole message. We're going to put it all together. You just don't do it at the text level when you're interpreting You do it after you've done your interpretation and you assemble the piece, the one piece, okay? Number five, here's here's where the big, um, what makes somebody feel uncomfortable at this point is number five, and, and, and it has to be included in it. Do not overly isolate your individual text so that you never consider that a later testament or later texts have come. In the end, don't forget the New Testament. You can't, you can't. And, and, and guys have done this poorly in, in certain camps and certain sections of uh, sects of, of Christianity where they'll preach in the Old Testament and they'll preach in such a way that they're, they'll lay out everything that's going on in the historical context. Everything is accurate to that point, but as a Christian man preaching to Christian people, um, he just ends there. And you don't know that Jesus Christ came, Messiah actually came. Uh, and he died on a cross. And as those who trust in him, who have been made new, who need to follow him and live for him, what bearing does that passage have on the way that I live now? Well, he didn't even care about that. Because he just stayed there. As Christian men, we, we don't want to do that. that. We just don't want to do that. Because more came. And so when you hear me say, properly isolate a text, momentarily suspend other passages... I do not mean do it in such a way that you never get to other passages. All we're saying is hang out a little bit longer in your passage than you think you need to. Stay a little bit longer before you let other things creep over the wall and influence what you're looking at. Eventually, you need to do that. There needs to be no walls left when you're done, and you're going to listen to everything. Just be disciplined. I'm I'm trying to figure out as many different ways to say this. And the reason I'm saying it as many different ways as I can is because this is the this is the where the, the trip is. This is where we, we catch our feet, we fall down, and we make our mistakes. I've been in I've been in small groups where we'll be studying, and um, a question will come out and say, "Well, what what is what is uh, what is brotherly love?" And the first thing that happens in the study is we're in we're in a passage right here. What is brotherly love? Well. Over in such and such a a passage, brotherly love is described as, is that wrong? Or is it just out of order? It's not wrong. When should you do that? That's the issue. Stay in your passage and let your passage that you're in speak of brotherly love in its setting a lot on its own. Don't let anything else creep over. And then turn your pages. Look before it, look after it, okay? Do you understand what we're saying? Number six, always strive to summarize and develop and refine the one message of the whole Bible. And what I mean by that is your opinion of what the one message of the Bible is. Uh, You don't have to refine God's one message. He's got it summarized better. We know it's about him. We know it's about Messiah, his son, Um, but... This is like what we talked about with your theology. Where's your controlling line of authority? It's not in what your opinion of this one message of the Bible is. Your controlling line of authority is found right through here, the rebar that holds all of us together. Your controlling line of authority is here. So we know, and if we summarize the message of the Bible as being about Christ, we know that's true, but when I come back... To this passage right here, I'm going to hold on to this and say, I'm going to let this passage speak loudly to what I believe the one message of the Bible is to help me refine it, to summarize it better, to make it clearer, to make it more understood. Okay? You do that with your theological system as well. Dispensationalism, covenant theology, new covenant theology, Arminian system, whatever it is you can portion you have. You come back and you say, I'm going to let this passage right here speak very loudly as I hold this in my hand up to it. And I'm going to let the controlling line of authority speak. And if look, if you trust the God who put this Bible together, you have nothing to fear. Hold Christ in your hand open. Hold it open. And hold it right up to there. And with a proper interpretation, that passage will speak and show you. An angle on that, when you turn it, when the light of Scripture hits it, it's going to refract colors and and give you a a view into that that you never saw before. That's going to make you all the more, when you walk away, hold on to Christ stronger than you did before. Trust the guy who wrote the Bible. Trust the God who put it together. Okay, now, go back to your questions on page one. I want to walk through these based on what we just talked about that whole, the piece of the proper interpretation. What is the relationship between the message of the whole and the two testaments? Okay? Well, for whatever reason, God put the Bible together with with an older testament of himself and a newer testament of himself. I like to say that that way a lot of times, an older and a newer, because I think it kind of gives you a sense of oneness, even though there's two testaments. Okay? Well, these two are going to help us understand what the, the message of the one message of Christ is. What is the relationship between the message of the whole Bible and the specific meanings here? <coughs> well, I know that each individual piece, each individual paragraph, each individual instruction is, is going to provide bearing on this. I know that. I'm counting on that. I believe God put the Bible together that way. Okay? Next question, down to the next one. If the plethora of all these individual texts from the Older Testament through the Newer Testament, if they help us to assemble the one message of the Bible, then how much is each text weighted with that one message of the Bible? Do I need to in every passage now, does this mean in every single passage, no matter where I'm at, that I've got to find Christ in that passage somehow, in the sense that He has to be there, I have to... Did God write people back then in such a way that he was going to unload everything that's been revealed about Christ here back into it? Or was God, did God have revelational patience? If God had revelational patience, well, I'm going to reveal a sliver and oh yeah, in my mind, if this is God, in my mind, I have one message I'm going to communicate. But the way that I'm going to reveal it is Patiently. If God was revelational, had, had revelational patience here, guess what you need to have? Hermeneutical patience. Teach it what is right here. And it's going to have all kinds of bearing on this one message. But the church fathers at points and times in the past tried to find ways to push Christ into every single passage. And Rahab in the court, and we laugh at that. Oh, <laughs> that's so foolish! But you know, we've got our own sophisticated ways of doing it. Um, and you can read, you can find it in, in all kinds of commentaries. I've li- I listened to when I when I worked on my um, in, in my doctorate when I was working on um, the Mosaic Law and the Christian. I listened to um, sermons from S. Lewis Johnson on um, Leviticus. He taught through Leviticus. He was a He was was an oddball at Dallas Theological Seminary back in the heyday of dispensationalism um, because he was reformed in his soteriology at Dallas. He was reformed in this view of salvation and they didn't know what to do with him. His way of handling Leviticus,
1: horrible, terrible.
0: He had ways of finding Jesus in every goat and in everything that was going on I kept asking myself, okay, was that the intent of Moses writing to the people in Leviticus that they had to see Messiah in that? And how you answer that question could be yes or no. Yes, it's exactly the intent. Okay, let's talk about how he did it. In every single little detail of it? Or that when I put that piece together with this other piece next to it, and I walk forward through my Bible and I put the next piece with it and the next piece with it and I keep assembling my interpretations from those, I go, absolutely, it's about Christ. So yeah, is, is the dove and is the goat and the, all the different sacrifices, are they about Jesus in the Old Testament? Absolutely. And not yet, too. You have to hold that intention. If you think that the only way for Christ to come out is to equally weight each of the individual passages with Christ in it, well, you're going to do some things to your Bible that are not going to take words at their face value. You're going to violate words. Can I give you guys a a ridiculous illustration on this? All right. There is one man in this family and it's me. There's only one man in this family. This is my wife, Kim, Elissa, Sydney, and Jace. If you were to go to each one of them and say um, reveal the one man in this family to me. Um, Kim might say my name. Scott Maxwell. And Jace or Alyssa might say, you know, Scott Maxwell. And Cindy might say it, Scott Maxwell. And Jace might say, Scott Maxwell. Um, there, you take each piece here and you ask them who the man in the family is. And each one is carrying the full weight of what the full message is. Right? Or the full person is, right? Um, is that the way that God would his Bible? Or you might come and you might ask him, and, and she'd say, "Well, you know what? He's the. He's been my husband of 20 years." And you go to Alyssa, and she'll say, yeah, "He. Um, he is a pastor." And you go to Sydney, and she just says, "He's my dad." And Jay says, "He plays basketball with." Now let me ask you a question. If I put all of the pieces together, do I get the one man? No doubt about. It. Um, is all that I am though a husband of twenty years? Is that my entirety of who I am? No. There's there's much more to me than just being a husband of twenty years. Um, I am not all of what she says I am, and yet that's true. Is it not? You understand what we're trying to do here? So um, there are two different ways to get after the one message, the one man. Each one has to say exactly the same thing about who the one man is. Or each one of them can say very true things and put them out there, and I have to read all of it, and I get a much better sense of who the whole is by listening to all of them. If I only listen to what she says or somebody only listens to what she says – Others will walk away and say, he has no kids. And that would be wrong. That would not be who I am in in my entirety. You have to listen to all of the pieces, right? You have to put them all together. So the danger in asking only one is that you would not get the full picture. Do you understand the tension? I mean, I'm trying to illustrate this for you so that you can see. Look, trust the God who put the Bible together. He doesn't have to put Jesus Christ in his entirety in every single passage to have the whole message be about Christ. On the other side of that, that must be equally true at the same time. If you preach this part right here, and you in your sermon or in your lesson in a small group, you don't get to Jesus Christ, there's a problem. Get to Jesus Christ. How you do it is everything. How you do it is everything. If you're going to talk about any theological subject, we'll do this in a little bit, the Sabbath. If you're going to talk about the Sabbath and not talk about Jesus Christ, you've got big problems. Why? Because the Bible in its entire message says that the Sabbath is really about Jesus. You want to talk about rest with God? You can't find it about Jesus. So if you're going to preach on Sabbath back here, and all you end up doing is preaching about Sabbath back here, you missed a great opportunity. Hmm. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with developing fully in this little box right here. everything that this little box says about Sabbath, because it's not going to undo the message. What do I just need to make sure of? that I want it. I go forward. I get You guys understand? You want me to find a step I can find more ways to try to say this. But this is so important. Okay? So important. All right, what questions do you have at this point before we go on on page three? Tom. Um,
3: so, Ray had a, a red board, is that correct? Yep. So, when we teach a passage like that, how do we know whether red is significant? Because when I not at I'm thinking What well, they specifically said the color. There and I know many times that the Jews back in that day understood things. And so, and so, how do I know whether I need to, I don't know, horrify but you know, bring up red. Bring up more,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's a great question. <clears throat> the um, I think that the way to answer something like that is um, which passage bears the most weight in being able to explain that to? That passage. So, you scour that passage and you try to say, is this passage trying to tell me something significant about red versus green versus blue? And there'd be no passage that will speak to it more than that one. And you might be able to find, and I think it'd be a good idea. Is there, is there any, look outside of that passage and look for, a, see if there's any bearing that red has. Um, if you go, but. If, if that—I um, got too many thoughts in my head at once. If if that passage does not seem to indicate really any significance of that color over any other color, then any conclusions you have that go beyond that, you need to be very humble in why, what you say in your lesson that you teach. I think you have a freedom if you want to say, you know, there. Uh, Maybe you find some research and you 're like it 's not insignificant in my opinion, looking at other historical things that it 's read, but i 'll be the first to admit to you that that 's not in this text it 's observations i 've made elsewhere, and I just think that 's in my opinion it's like, you know, an interesting observation. I think you have the freedom to say that if you want, just don 't give the impression to people that you got that right out of that passage. Do you understand what i 'm saying um. Wrong.
3: Well, and it's kind nice. of again it goes back to the way we think, and this in our culture is the way they thought. You know, they're telling an incredible story. Mm-hmm. We like to micro map down to the red court, You know, cord, you know and we miss a whole, you know, intent of that that story because we get focused on a cord, and but that's the way we're kind of wired. You know, we we, we like to go down and stop but you know they're just telling an incredible story. That story itself, you know, gives a, a picture of something in the future. That so, yeah. You know, looking at your uh, former in your life and how they, how they describe you, um, it, it, it seems to be. Uh, it, maybe we replaced he played basketball too. He hugs me a lot. Um, it seems to be that. I'm really struggling with, uh, with parenting, so I'm going to go find out what the Bible has to say.
0: Right. We um, I've got a quote for you here that will um, on page five for you that will uh, I think touch on, on some of right there. there. did you have a question or hand up, Tom? Yeah, yeah I
3: think it's uh, kind of ironic that we're talking about this topic on a day where it's forty million Christians think Jesus is returning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I just <laughs> this, <laughs> Scott your point is just so appropriate on a day where so many are so confused. Yeah. And,
1: and doesn't that speak to that whole idea of um, handing off the baton versus making a name for yourself? I mean, you interpret Scripture um, you know, with,
3: with the goal in mind to just transfer what it says here to someone else, as opposed to, well, I, in my opinion, you know, I mean, Sometimes our opinion is a little puffed up. Yeah. Think found something. Yeah. Unfortunately, this man's ministry is about 40 to 50 years of Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And we're $72 million. know
1: with him is he started out having
0: that a you guys hear that? Wow. Say that again.
1: This man, with all this stuff, started off with right theology. He was a Reformed Presbyterian, and one of the characteristics of him was that he went in isolation um, and came up with his own ideas, and brew and simmer, and so finally he broke away from everything else and went down this path.
0: You might start well, finish well finish well. And the way that you finish well is by shepherding your heart, <coughs> shepherding your home, paying attention to the ministry that you have with people, and right theology, and a right hermeneutic, but your heart, right? Um, guys, on pages three and following, I'm not going to go through this in depth because I um, I want to be able to spend the bulk of time in, uh, at the end. Pages 3, 4, and part of 5 have to do with primarily um, understanding um, how, how we should view the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in particular, Mosaic law with, with being a Christian. Um, it's stuff that I, I got from my... Um, I put in from... Uh, my doctorate stuff that I did and um, so what I want to do is just kind of run through some broad parts of it I don't want to get bogged down in this and if we have time at the end and we want to come back to it we can Um, one of the ways if we're going to talk about the Bible in um, its two testaments there is um, two words that are used by theologians to help understand how the two testaments are related continuity where uh, there's some things that never change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I think we would all agree that that's obviously true. God doesn't change. And so there is some things that are continuous all the way through. Um, The other word is the opposite of that is discontinuity. There are some things that have changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We can see that. I think we all know that. The, the, The question is, how do these two things relate to one another and what, what what bearing do they have on the unity of the Bible as a whole, the message of the Bible? The interesting thing that I found as I went through it in regards to Mosaic Law trying to explain and, and watching Christians over centuries try to battle this out, well, the way that we find uh, that, the way that I'll try to express continuity in the Bible in regards to Mosaic Law is uh, let's divide Mosaic Law into three categories, um, ceremonial, civil, and moral. Ceremonial law, civil law, moral law. Uh, ceremonial law has been put away with Christ, discontinuity. Civil law, the, the laws of the nation of Israel itself have been put away in Christ, discontinuity. Continuity, moral law. Moral laws continue all the way throughout. Moral laws, by that I mean, like, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, honor your parents. See, we see that in, in both, and... and um, the question that's you know we've talked about this in the past. I mean, if if you were in the Old Testament, if you were in a part of Israel, and you decided that you weren't going to do a ceremonial law, um, everybody would have treated that as a moral issue. It's arbitrary to say that the civil laws are not moral, and the ceremonial laws do not have moral bearing to them. Um, all of it is moral in the eyes of God. that's See, that, that's, that's Christians trying to wrestle to find for ways that the Bible never changes and for ways that there are things that do change. That's just not the right way to go after it. Um, Christ actually, I think, puts himself at the center of continuity. There's Christ-centered continuity, and there's actually Christ-centered discontinuity. When you read your Gospels, you're going to find Jesus at points Speaking like nothing's changed. Nothing at all. In fact, look at it here. Um, According to Jesus and Paul, an organic union exists between Moses writing and Jesus' words. What did Jesus say? Moses wrote about me. Nothing's changed. I've come, and I'm telling you, what he wrote about me, uh, is you need to pay attention to. So you can read Moses and get something about Messiah. You have to. According to Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is rooted in Moses' writings and law, according to Jesus and Paul. He says to his disciples, Why are you so slow apart to believe everything that was written in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms? In other words, you could get the gospel, guys, elements of it, seed form of it, in Mosaic law. Nothing's changed. Paul saw his teachings united alongside the Old Testament for the church's benefit. All scripture is inspired by God. And we've talked about how what Paul says before that to Timothy, if you, you remember who you learned these things from. I taught you and you have the sacred writings. All of scripture is inspired. Paul put his writings alongside Old Testament writings and said it's profitable for teaching. Peter did the same thing with Paul's writings in 2, Timothy, or 2 Peter 3. Paul's words are hard to understand along with the rest of scriptures. He's put them on the same level. So see, some things never change from Old Testament to New. And it exalts Christ in that. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. It's about his instructions that are helpful for us. But Christ also put himself at the center of breaks from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus clearly declared John the Baptist's ministry to be a distinguishing line worth noticing. He over and over and said, John's the last prophet. The one in the kingdom who believes is greater than John. The only way that can be true is if something new and an expression of the kingdom is coming in the hearts of those who believe, that is different than what John summed up in the end. Jesus acted and taught with an authority that authorized him to inaugurate a new era in law. I mean, he said things that made him, the listeners would have, could not have said, you know, he's a nice man. He's a good boy from Nazareth. They couldn't say that. They would have to have done exactly what the Pharisees did. Where are the rocks? Get them now. Because this guy is making himself out to be someone bigger than he should be. So he positions himself. I am an authoritative man. A man of authority. Thirdly, Jesus called his hearers to be specifically regulated by him. Matthew 11, 20-30. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He is saying, you come to me and I will be your teacher. He is saying, I'm going to be the instructor. I'm going to be the Lord over your life. Jesus displayed authority a chapter later over Sabbath regulation and Mosaic law. We're going to look at this a little bit later. Um, He said, uh, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is under me, Jesus says. Okay? That's Nobody, there's only one person who could say that. It's God. And here he comes, doing things on the Sabbath that make people very nervous. Jesus' authority reached beyond the regulation of Mosaic law. Mark 7, I talked about that, where he says, And thus he declared all foods clean. Look, that goes beyond Mosaic law. It just does. Mosaic law said, Uh uh-uh, uh, not all foods are clean. Jesus says all foods are clean. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great... What we did, and this is why we as a a church, part of my my whole project was to preach through Leviticus 19. Verse by verse. Because Leviticus 19 is loaded with passages that um, are repeated in the New Testament. Love your brother, love your neighbor. um, Stuff like that. Well, Well, why do I obey that one of Mosaic Law, but I don't obey the Sabbath stuff there? Why don't I go, I don't obey the, what, what about tattoos? That's in Leviticus 19. And I've heard all kinds of Christian support. You shouldn't get a tattoo from Leviticus 19. Um, and so we preach through it verse by verse. And w- I, what we try to do is on your next page, you actually have uh, how, remember the the one through five or six that on page two, I actually applied that to mosa- interpreting Mosaic Law, how would I would apply that to Mosaic Law. In fact, look at page four. Here's what we did as in terms of handling handling Mosaic Law. Reminder number one at the very beginning, and it stair-stepped up because I want to show there's something climactical happening. There's yeah, Mosaic Law, great. Someone much bigger than Moses came. And if we're going to, as Christians, say, you know what, but I prefer to still be under the regulations of Moses. Uh, Do you understand what you're saying? Do you understand what you're saying? Someone greater than Moses has come. Someone greater than Solomon has come. Someone greater than the prophets is here. Do you understand what you're saying? His regulations, you step out from... Here's the panic button for most. If I step out from underneath the Ten Commandments, we're going to be lawless people? We're going to be immoral people? Really? So the one who's greater than Moses has a set of instructions that he wants people to follow in the New Testament. You step out from under Moses, get under these, and you're going to be immoral? Immoral? Do you understand what you're saying about Jesus? You just made him seem very small. You made it seem like the Bible was written, that I'll tell you when the climax came, at Sinai. The climax of the Bible is Sinai, Mount Sinai. That's where it is. And Jesus is a decrescendo. Do you understand what you're saying with that interpretation? I feel a little strongly about that. <laughs> because it's about Christ. It's tied up in Christ, guys. It's tied up in Christ. I'm a little afraid to ask, but no. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't be afraid to ask. Big deep breath.
3: Do people sit under that umbrella
1: because they feel safer? Because I'm under normal I'm under normal and I know that I'm, I'm under God's umbrella. Yeah.
0: I, think, I think a good portion of it is due to the fact that we are primarily people who just say... Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And boy, the Ten Commandments tell you what to do. Just tell me what to do. But listen, the power for the Christian life is in the gospel. It's not in what you do. It's in what God did at the cross. That's where power is. The power in in, in Romans 6 is rooted in the fact that God united you to Christ crucified. That was very powerful in your life when he did that. And he united you to Christ raised from the dead. Very powerful things that God did. I haven't done anything yet. And the first command that comes out of Paul's mouth in Romans 6 is, you ready? Consider this. Go do that. Go meditate on the gospel. That's where power is. And guess what? There'll be plenty to do. And you'll get to it, but you'll be equipped to do it. But we carry, look, humanity, that by the nature of who we are, we want to do our morality based primarily on rules. Give me those first. And so we rush into the Christian life carrying this baggage of, well, here's a whole bunch of rules. And they've been hung on to by bad interpretation, in my opinion, from centuries past from well-meaning, solid Christians that have been carried forward. We need to shrug this off. This is where, in my opinion, the Reformation didn't go far enough. We need to shrug it off. They recovered the Bible. Praise God. They needed to recover a little bit more and interpret it more carefully. Um, Let's go back to the box here. First reminder, this law is not my law. When God wrote Mosaic Law through Moses, he was not writing it to me, a 20th, first century Christian. He was writing it to people who lived in a certain swath of land that they were going to go to a certain swath of land and many of the regulations that he came up with only work there you wouldn't be able to make them work in Papua New Guinea many of them because they're tied to a specific spot Okay, it wasn't given to me I am not legally bound by it it was given to Israel It was issued by God to ancient Israel as a part of his covenant with them. Next point up, original audience. What was the meaning and the application and the purpose of the law for whom? Israel. You will do nothing wrong in staying in Leviticus 19 for a long time to just get that. That's not going to hurt you. It's only gonna help you. Stay there. What was God's point? Listen, God... Had a whole bunch of kids before he ever had you. How selfish of us to say it doesn't matter. I don't. I don't know anything about my my father and what he was like with other people. I just want to know what he's like with me. Really? I want to. I want to know what th- this father was like. What he was like when he was uh, revealing himself to others that he expected to follow him and trust in him. Do we love God? We can go to Mosaic law and find it very profitable. Uh, Let's qualify what we mean. It reveals God. Oh, my goodness, it reveals portions of, and, and characteristics of God. That's the next step. Theology. As a Christian, ask yourself once you have done that, you have camped in Leviticus 19 or whatever passage you've been in. Now, th- think theologically. What does the law reveal concerning God's eternal nature and character? Listen, if you teach Mosaic law and you miss the lawgiver, you've got a big problem. <laughs> We don't want to be those kinds of men who do that. Because the law is, God didn't write his law so much that we would just go, dude, those are cool regulations. They reveal something of the heart of the lawgiver. What can we learn about God? What does this reveal about his character? Now, next step. We are Christians. Last column on the right. Christ centered worship and application. If, and i kind of break this down into two steps. If there is a specific New Testament teaching for the specific law in the Old Testament that's under consideration, then you must, in your teaching, develop that specific New Testament teaching, that specific Christ-centered worship and application. And this is where you find a majority of the Ten Commandments repeated in the New Testament. Right? So if you're going to teach, honor your father and mother, and you are going to do it from Exodus 20... That's great. Start there. But you are teaching Christians, and you have an obligation as an instructor of the word to help them understand that more revelation came. And when you come down to the very end, what do you want the Christians to walk away thinking? I am bound to Jesus, or I am bound to Moses? Because if you make them walk away thinking they're bound to Moses, they're going to turn just a matter of a page or two in their Old Testament, they're going to find something. They're going to be scratching their head going, I'm supposed to honor my mother and my father, but why don't I have to do this one? Or should I do this one? Go forward in your Bible. Okay? What if there, though, is not a specific New Testament teaching for the law under consideration? Uh, And there's a whole host of them that of the Old Testament commands that are not repeated in the new. I think this is where you humbly develop Christ-centered worship and application from New Testament teaching that is related to the Old Testament theology. Okay, so you, you develop the Old Testament passage and you drew some <clears throat> theological conclusions about God. You look at those and you move to your New Testament and you say, um, well, is there anything Christological about Christ that seems to match, be a, 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 a match here between the two. And you might go, oh yeah, there's, I, I didn't think about this. Love for uh, the stranger. Um, don't glean your fields all the way to the corner. Leave a portion of it for the widow, the orphan, and the homeless, the stranger, the sojourner among them. That's not repeated in the New Testament. What is that revealing to us about the heart of God? He has a concern for those who are not in his people. They need to be cared for. Defenseless people need to be cared for. God is a defender of the defenseless. Let's go to the New Testament. Is there anything that would underline that in New Testament teaching? Then I should look at that. Now what I just did is I just held my two testaments together. And at the same time, put discontinuity where discontinuity needs to take place. I don't want to give any Christian the idea that now they can only pick um, 80% of the oranges off of the tree. Because of what it said in Leviticus 19. But I want them to walk away seeing the heart of God in Mosaic Law. And, this, and what has never changed? The heart of God. In fact, it only becomes crystal, crystal clear in the New Testament. You understand? So that's the way that we've applied the interpretation to like Mosaic Law on those two pages. Um, That whole series is on the web. If you want to um, access it, just go to message resources and look for Leviticus 19. I think we did 11, 8, 8 to 11 messages on it going through Leviticus 19. Every single passage. I can remember every week going... Some of these were really easy to go forward to the New Testament because they were repeated. And there were some that was, they weren't. And I was like, oh my goodness, how Christ has to be everything in the sermon. But guess what I didn't do? I didn't give the impression that Christ was in every detail of Leviticus 19. You see, there are two ways to do it. How much is the message in Leviticus 19 weighted with the whole message of Jesus? It's not. I'm not afraid to develop a specific point here. It's not gonna undo what I conclusion I come to about Jesus Christ or over here. Right? Kurt?
1: Totally off the subject, but um remember the bowie Bachman Right. The um if you look at Ephesians 6 and and uh up around in the training and instruction of the Lord, would you and I'm actually used to
3: yeah. if you're looking at what
1: does that look like to train, train, your, train your children up yeah. and train your Lord yeah. would you go back to the Old Testament yeah. at any point to find um, to, to help flesh that out
0: yeah. great question um, as we've been talking about reading it forward um, we've, we're primarily talking about if you, if you deal with a passage here you need to keep making your way this way what if you teach a passage here Um, Where I am not as strong, what what I want to improve on is if I'm teaching here, I want to also be able to go back and give a flavor of what's been going on. This takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of practice and it takes you expanding your brain to be able to get around the message of the Bible. Because if you're going to do that in every single sermon you do, how much of the time are you going to be able to take? In developing that. I'll tell you a guy who does it really well in terms of illustrating from here is, is MacArthur. He goes back to the Old Testament and he illustrates from here. Um, I think that's very helpful. I think like in, in honoring your father and your mother, I think it'd be um, very helpful to go back to say to people, let's, let's go back to the Old Testament and let's watch how Israel did this. The heart of God for Israel was that his children would be this and do this. Look at here. Let me give you some good examples Let me show you a bad example. Look at Eli and his sons. Eli honored his sons more than he honored God. Look what happened. Terrible. So you can see something of um, the heart of God being violated by these in the Old Testament and affirmed in the Old Testament. For us in the New Testament, I would want to do that and yet at the same time not give the impression that as I'm illustrating from the Old Testament that you are bound to Mosaic Law. If people walk away from that and they feel that they are bound, I didn't do a good job. So yes, can you go to the Old Testament? Please do so. It will help pull your Bible together from the other end. But you don't want to part. And that's what makes me very nervous about guys who do that in their interpretation. Dave? This is kind to pay
1: you I mean, All you can think about is so what would you say to somebody if they said, well I have crosses and Bible verses Yeah, I don't know if you wrong, but I don't know
0: the Yeah. Um it would be an interest it would be a great conversation to have at some point. I you know, I'm not a I I'm not under the persuasion that, that you better deal with that first thing. If I know them, if it's somebody who I, I, I know and I love and I have a relationship with, I wouldn't hesitate to say so why do you do it? Well, because you know Deuteronomy six, six you know, or in, you know, so so Paul, the intent of Moses in that passage is, um, and God's thought is that that's for for all of us. So I would just start to walk through, and and just try to get to motive, and because what you what what don't you want to do? If there's a desire for them to Keep reminders in front of them in, in, in ways that are appropriate. I don't want to—I don't want to squelch that desire. Um, but if there's something in their thinking that's like, well, you know, i mosaic law is, you know, I, you know, then I want to address that too. So I would just try to be sensitive about that.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so the New Testament does have that, that idea. You read Colossians three. Let mm-hmm. the word of Christ richly dwell within you teaching one another, you're admonishing one another, Hmm. Psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. The idea of keeping something in front of you, in the Old Testament, there were those things that that caused them to remember the law, things that were on the forehead, on the wrist, and so forth. In the New Testament, we have the idea of keeping something in front of you. But it's with one another. You speak to one another, you encourage one another, help the word of Christ. And so, there there is some sense of continuity in the fact that we need to
0: keep the word of God in yeah. I think that's a really helpful, Scott. Set your mind on the things above. Um, uh, renew your minds. Um, the principle is is there. Um, it doesn't necessarily look the same. It has a freedom to it in Christ that it's not bound by a specific physical outward manifestation um, that, that, that's, a, that's a good way to show the continuity, I appreciate that, that's good alright, let's go to page, um, we've got about a half an hour, I want to walk through this um, I give you some quotes to chew on you already have the third one I handed that out to you um, two times ago that's House's quote from the Old Testament developing the Old Testament theology hopefully this will make a little bit more sense as you see these quotes, I'll let you read them on your own um, let's see um, who brought up earlier the I I said I had a quote for you later or you didn't okay that's um, Tripp's book Um, there's one sentence in that quote at the end towards the end that I I want to qualify second line up from the bottom on that um, Paul David Tripp's quote instruments in the Redeemer's hands he says he meaning Jesus is the main theme of the narrative and he is revealed in every passage in the book his theological persuasion is coming through um, the cut of theological cloth he is from is coming through i agree with that if depending on what you mean okay right and i think that's why I would you know you should be able to say i agree the bible's about jesus absolutely how i'm going to get to jesus with a from a text and from a passage that's everything and that's what's going to mark you know one guy out from another um Let's talk about some things that you can do. This is, um, I gave you a list of some biblical themes to progressively isolate one text at a time for the grasping of the one message of scripture. One of the things you can do as you read through your Bible each year is look for these themes. Look for promised seed or offspring. Look for that because that's repeated. It seems to carry itself throughout. Sacrifice. Oh my goodness, one way God has not changed from the beginning a substitute being shed in the place of the worshiper and blood everywhere. That has not changed. In fact, you get all the way to heaven itself and I saw a lamb standing as if slain. God preserves even in heaven the sacrifice of his son being visible to all. Not re-sacrificed, but a picture of him there. Um, an innocent substitute in blood. Sacrificial lamb, priest, is repeated Tabernacle or tent or temple is repeated. Um, Sabbath rest. That's the one we're going to go over on page 7. Or maybe it's 6 for you. I don't know what it is. Trace the idea of the word king. A Davidic king. Kingdom of God. Keep all this going on your own. But start tra- tracing those and isolate them one text at a time. And now what I want to do is I want to do that with Sabbath. Aren't you thrilled to think of it already? Sabbath. Isn't it great? Go to Genesis 2. My goodness, guys, I tell you what. This, and I'm going to apologize to you right now. In about two weeks, I'm going to do the same thing from the pulpit in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Turn to Genesis 2, 1 to 3 and put your seatbelt on. Here we go. Think about what we're doing here. I'm going to draw attention to the process. I'm going to point it out as we go. Isolate one text at a time. Properly so. And then we're going to move forward. And then we're going to move forward. And then we're going to move forward. Why? Because we want to get the... One main message that is coming through. And Sabbath is a tool in the Bible that will help you to get the one main message that's coming through. All right. You ready? Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Initial interesting note. Twice it is said that creation is completed, evolution is a process that is still even going on. God says it's done. Major conflict, okay? Side note, though, that's only side note. The other main thing here is, um, verse 2, who rested on the seventh day? Who? God rested. Verse 3, he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, who rested? He rested. Question, does this passage here call the seventh day the Sabbath? No. No. Is there a command here in verses 1 to 3 for man to do anything? No. The controlling line of authority for me in this passage is this passage. This passage does not call it the Sabbath. This passage does not command anybody anywhere to do anything. You say that in certain circles, and there are rocks flying almost immediately. But for me, the controlling line of authority for me is not in my system, it's in the text. And if the text leads me there, I'll go there. If it doesn't lead me there, I'm not going there. Okay. The burden of this passage in verses 1 to 3, guys, is about what God did. It's not about what man should do in response to God. Now, let's think forward a little bit from the fall in verses, um, in chapter 3 and following, all the way to Mount Sinai. Um, It appears here that the Creator's work, which was all in Genesis 1, Right? The creator's work It appears that it was entered into by man His work, the creator's work uh, In chapter 1 he even said um, I've given all this food to you Here are the animals, exercise dominion I want you to do your work in my creation Chapter 2 verse 15 The Lord God took the man And put him into the garden of Eden To cultivate it and keep it It appears that man After the days of creation Entered into the creator's work to do right? But the creator's rest, which is in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, was impossible for man to enter into after man fell. So we don't know how soon the fall took place after God created Adam. It probably wasn't very long. There might have been some portion of time in which there was man enjoying what God had, but probably wasn't a whole lot of time there. I know you're
1: in a hurry Can you take 30 seconds of- he come
0: up he does something by the way first off it is impossible for me in 30 seconds to do anything crazy, but
1: <laughs>
0: secondly <laughs> just being honest um, what they do is they read Genesis 2 through the lens of Exodus 20 they take a later passage, And what do they do? They push it into Genesis two. Faulty interpretation. It doesn't say that. Genesis or Exodus twenty ends up having more authority over what Genesis two says in Genesis two. So
1: they immediately have to jump away from that. Immediately. There's
0: no none of that momentarily suspending. Okay? We'll come back to that. Great question. But it appears that as soon as man fell, that man was not able to enter into the Creator's rest. Go to chapter 3, verse 17. Then God said to Adam, as uh, he found out that they had sinned, Because you, Adam, have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed Is the ground because of you? In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat the bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The work is cursed now. Um, God is looking, uh, God is basking in His blessing on day seven. But it appears that man has now missed that blessed rest of the creator. And you know what? He actually knows that he has missed it. Can I give you proof that man knows that he had missed the rest? Go to Genesis 5, verse 29. Uh, Verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and he became the father of a son. Verse 29, now he called his name Noah because saying, this one will give us Rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. I think that's indication that man early on knew that there was to be a rest in what he did, but he can't get it now because of the curse, because of his sin. The most the biblical data reveals from the fall to Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, is that man basically recognizes a seven-day week cycle. Look at Genesis 8. If we're going to let the controlling line of authority be in our text, Genesis 8, verse 10, So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. Verse 12 does the same thing. He, yet, he waited yet another seven days and went out and sent the dove out, and he, she did not return to him. That's really the main idea you get. This is staggering. From Genesis 2 and 3 all the way to Exodus 16, you'll see here in a moment, there's really nothing said about Sabbath. Okay? Um, It's strangely absent from Genesis 3 all the way to Mount Sinai or just prior to Mount Sinai. And here's what's very interesting. God made it clear in the the same section of Scripture, he made it very clear that other important regulations like sacrifice are on the pages of Scripture. Noah's sacrificing. He made it very clear that um, subjects like circumcision would reach the pages of Scripture. He made it very clear that tithing, um, Abraham with Melchizedek. Now, those regulations appear to make it to the pages of Scripture, but one that did not is the Sabbath. That doesn't mean it wasn't commanded necessarily. The absence of it in Scripture does not completely Uh, make it impossible but it's very strong that it didn't um, as well Um, a Sabbath rest is strangely not spelled out more clearly God could have if he wanted to and so this is where I say don't read later revelation back into prior revelation because what you're going to do is you're going to force a text to have to, to surrender its authority over itself to another passage and you just can't do that yeah.
1: Aren't there times, though, where, and I agree 100% with what you're saying, that there are times where the New Testament specifically gives us an interpretation of an Old Testament passage, yeah. and I would even say that there's times where you look at the how the New Testament interprets an Old Testament passage, I'm not saying this happens a lot or in these dark times, but there's no way on this earth that the yeah. original would have ever gotten that yeah.
0: Yes, I agree with that. There are times. The problem is um, I haven't <coughs> seen a theological camp explain their hermeneutic, hermeneutic yet that actually puts a restriction on that. Because what that does is that assumes that every New Testament's use of the Old Testament is a, an interpretation of an Old Testament one. And I think that is a huge assumption to make. There are some, certainly. And you're going to see when we um, a week from Sunday when we talk about the image of God. Man, it's a mysterious subject in chapter 1 of Genesis. And we are not going to get the answer to it in Genesis 1. We have to look at progressive revelation and get an idea. But we still need to be careful to not pretend like Moses wrote in Genesis 1, like he knew everything that the New Testament tells us about the image of God. And yet we can be able to say because the image of God hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New we should be able to draw some conclusions that help us figure out Genesis 1. So it's a tension. But my... Look, I'm going to boast not It's not my hermeneutic. But I'm going to boast in this hermeneutic for a moment. This hermeneutic that I'm trying to set before you guys doesn't undo any of that and cause any problems. Because it's going to let every passage speak on its own authority, on its own time, if you properly isolate it and give each passage its own time. Make sure you work forward. Make sure you work forward. Don't forget that there's more revelation to come. Let's keep going. Let's go to Mount Sinai. An explosion of Sabbath. Oh wait, we can't do that yet. I forgot one key part. Um, What do we see from the fall on in Genesis is the thought, this is so amazing, that rest is tied to the expectation of a seed or an offspring coming. Look at Genesis 3.15. This is often called the Proto-Evangelium, the the beginning, the seed form of the gospel being unfolded in the pages of Scripture. It's found in the curse part that um, God gives to the serpent. He says to the serpent in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Another way to look at the word seed is the word offspring. Offspring. Between your offspring and her offspring, there's going to be nothing but conflict. Now, guess what? Why are there so many genealogies? What no.
1: <laughs>
0: why? That's a great one. I, let me write that one down and put your name by it. <laughs> um, why are there so? Why are the Jews so interested in? So-and-so son, and so-and-so son, and so-and-so son, and so-and-so son. Because I think there's an inherent built-in from the beginning.
2: Someone's coming.
0: Someone's coming. Go to Genesis 5 again. I'm going to show you the, the Noah passage just to give you a little bit more. Um, looking at it again from this angle. 5:28 and 29. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one... This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Is this the one? They're anticipating. How about Mount Sinai? Now now an explosion of Sabbath rest comes. Exodus primarily reveals the Creator has now become the Redeemer and that's not to say Genesis doesn't reveal God as a redeeming God. He does. But the accent in Genesis is on he's the one who made everything. Exodus, though, the accent is on is he took a people for himself and he redeemed them with his mighty right hand in his arm, right? So now the Creator is clearly accented as the Redeemer, and the Redeemer now has a rest to set before his people that he is forming, Israel. The rest of the Redeemer exists at all kinds of different levels and cycles so that Israel can see this rest everywhere before them. All throughout Exodus and Leviticus and a little bit in the Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's repeated, um, you see that there is a weekly Sabbath. Every seven days, click, rest. Every seven days, click, rest. Every week of your life, God would put rest in front of your face. Rest in front of your face. Rest in front of your face. It's hitting you like this. And then, he says, every seven years, a whole year of rest for the land. So every seven years of your life, you would get hit with this big year-long rest for the land. And then there's one more cycle of rest. Remember it? The year of Jubilee. So most likely, once in your lifetime, once in your lifetime, you would be hit. With a massive rest in which slaves go free. God, as the Redeemer of Israel says, "Let's talk about rest. Let me, let me give you some ideas of what I'm thinking about rest. Every week, rest. Every seven years, rest. Once every fifty years rest, once in a lifetime rest. You can't read from Exodus through Deuteronomy without seeing obvious explosion of rest, language, and exhortation. I didn't put them there for you. If you want to get a bunch of the um, rest passages, uh, I'll give them to you afterwards. So the rest here is now tied to the Redeemers, the Redeemer giving the rest. Now, let's talk about the second generation to Joshua. The the first generation died in the wilderness. They were unfaithful. Second generation to Joshua entering the promised land. Um, Let's go to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. Verse 8. Watch this. I'm going to go fast. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving to you. I'll go to Deuteronomy 25, verse 19. The point there is God is now tying an expectation that there is rest connected with the land, that they're going to. Rest is connected to the land. Uh, 25, verse 19. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which, you, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, that you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven, and you must not forget. So in Deuteronomy, the promised land becomes le- um, tied by God inseparably to Israel's rest. So now he gave them another rest. The weekly rest of the Sabbath day, A seven-year rest that would come and a 50-year jubilee rest. And then he says, also, when you get to the land, it's another kind of rest I'm setting before your eyes. And he ties it to inheritance, the idea of inheriting it, okay? Um, Even the land was said to be able to rest. Um, He talks about that at different parts where he says, hey, listen, when you get to the land and you don't celebrate my Sabbath rest for the land, I'm going to kick you out of the land so that the land can recover from all of the rest you never gave it, and it can finally rest. God is even tying his rest to dirt. It's amazing. Um, Let's go to Joshua 11. Joshua leads them in to the land. Joshua 11, verse 23 So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes and thus the land had rest from war. Go to chapter 14, verse 15. Of the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim when the land had rest from war. So what are we doing? We're just, we're just isolating passages that speak about rest. We're letting the passages try to say what, we're trying to let the passages say what they say about rest. God has put an explosion of rest language before Israel as they go into the land. Let's go forward to uh, Psalm 95 and look at King David. Psalm 95, we're moving forward in, 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 in biblical history. King David is the first good king for Israel. They are in the land. They um, have overwhelmingly conquered the land. Psalm 95. Actually, the writer of Hebrews attributes this psalm to David. It doesn't say in Psalm 95 that it's a psalm of David, but in Hebrews 3.7, the writer of Hebrews says that it is David's psalm. David says, God was angry with the continual hardness of heart and unbelief and rebellion of the first generation of Israelites in the wilderness. Look at verses six to 11. David says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, because he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, David says, today, my day with you. I'm your king. We're in Israel today. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, Though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and, they, and, and said they are people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. God swore in his anger, truly, that they would not enter into his rest. That's David basically calling the words of uh, it's not a direct quote, an exact quote from Numbers 14 and from Deuteronomy 1. But David's using those words that God spoke back then. In the wilderness. And he's grabbing those words from back then and he's pulling them forward into Psalm 95 and he's saying to his people, today, our day, David's day, he's exhorting his contemporaries to hear God's voice and if they hear God's voice, his word, don't harden your hearts because the last time this happened, no rest. No rest. Now, wait a minute. What is God doing calling David's generation through David? What is God doing calling them into God's rest if in the wilderness they actually had an explosion of rest given to them? They'd already received the rest that was provided from the land in the land. Don't they already have a major dose of rest? They still have the Sabbath day. They still have every seven years. They still have the year of Jubilee. They've got the land. It's resting. Rest is everywhere. What is this that David is saying? uh, You better be careful because you might not enter his rest. What is he talking about? The only thing I think that you can conclude is that God has a greater rest in mind beyond a Sabbath day rest. Because you can, here's a man who's saying to people who have Sabbath day rest, seven year rest, year of Jubilee rest, and land rest, saying you might miss his rest. You can have all of these rests, but you might miss his rest. There must be a rest that God has that's bigger than those. That maybe these point to, remind you of, but you can have these, but you can miss the big rest. And primarily comes through hardness of heart, Unbelief, not paying attention to God's word. Go to Jeremiah 6. This one's not in your list, but I want you to go to Jeremiah 6 for just a moment. Verse 9. Because this will help us. Jeremiah 6. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they will thoroughly glean as the vine of the remnant of Israel. Pass your hand again like a grape gather over the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Their ears are closed. They can't listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about the Israelites. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary with holding it in. Pour it out on the children in the street and on the gathering of young men together. For both husband and wife shall be taken, the aged and the very old. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, not going to do it. Verse 17, we will not listen. Hardness of heart, same thing again, later. Now, go to the New Testament, Matthew 11. Let's talk about Jesus' first coming. Matthew 11. Jesus arrives on the scene and he grabs the word rest. And you and I read this and it's like, that's a no big deal. I, it's just the word rest. Oh my goodness. If you were a Jew in his day and he used the word rest, your ears would pick, perk up because you don't even have the land anymore. Oh yeah, you get to live in it, but it's not yours. Still got your Sabbath rest. Still got your seven year rest. Maybe they're doing, well, they're not even doing that. They don't own the land. How are they going to do all this? And he unites that significant word to himself. Look at verse 20. Let's start there. He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Do you see a common theme here? In the wilderness, they harden their hearts. David says, whoa, today, don't do that. Jeremiah says, not listening. Their ears are stopped up. And Jesus now says, I'm gonna condemn you because you didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile places, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, etc. Capernaum, the same thing. And then at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, verse 25, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And here he says it. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Guess what he quotes? Jeremiah 6, 16. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The rest that could touch the weary soul that evidently the weekly rest couldn't touch, that evidently the seven-year rest couldn't touch, that evidently the 50-year rest couldn't touch, the rest that could touch the soul is here offered by Jesus and it is in connection with himself. Okay? In fact, in the next chapter of, of Matthew in chapter 12, he reveals that he is actually the Lord of that weekly Sabbath. Look at verse six. he gets you know he gets condemned here because they were hungry and they're picking the heads of wheat in the field, and somebody says, Hey, you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. And he says in verse six, I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. <laughs> Who made whose idea was the temple? The tent? God. He revealed it on a mountain long ago. The only person who's greater than the blueprint is the architect. And he says down in verse 8, the Son of Man is the Lord of this Sabbath weekly rest that you're talking about. I'm come, I'm offering a rest that's in me that your soul will find rest in. I'm bigger than the rest that's a week long or that's a day in a week. Now, let's go to Colossians 2. Do you notice how we're doing this? We're going from the Old Testament, working our way through the New Testament. Reading it forward, right? Colossians 2. After detailing um, the life-transforming work of the cross in their lives in chapter 2, Paul makes it very clear that the Sabbath day regulation, well, it's come to an end. He says in verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There's the cross work of Jesus Christ. There's salvation being laid out. Verse 15. When he, Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Based on this now, what? What's the application from this? Well, Paul says in verse 16, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And the only ones who would have acted, not the only ones, the primary ones who would have acted as a judge in regards to food, drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbath days would have been whom? The Jews. And he's saying they can't judge you on this. Why? Why? Because you're united to Christ. And his powerful work in the gospel puts you at a different place. Verse 17, all of these things in verse 16, including the Sabbath, are a shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Listen, guys, no one wants the shadow of the great man when they can have the great man. If the great man tied rest to himself, what do you want his shadow for? That's Paul's point. Why would you settle for a Sabbath day rest? You've got the you've got the bigger rest. You don't need that. If a Christian in Christ said, I would like to take a day and rest, I'm going to call that day Sunday, and I'm going to do it and try to glorify Christ with my life. Praise God. Do it. Don't teach it like it's the Sabbath for Christians. Do you have a freedom to do it? Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. As long as God can be glorified in it, of course. Let's go to a summary conclusion. Of this. Let's go to Hebrews 3. This takes us back to where we were earlier in the year when we were in um, Hebrews 3 and 4. Now, this is an amazing thing that goes on with the writer of Hebrews. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Um, He talks about uh, how Christ rendered powerless him who had the power of death. Um, He took away the fear of death. He was a faithful uh, and merciful high priest. He made propitiation for the sons of the people. Um, He is the guy that we need to come to. He can help us in our temptations. Application, verse chapter 3. Therefore, consider Jesus persecuted Jewish Christians who are contemplating coming back to Mosaic Law because then the persecution might end? Because that's what's going on in the context. Um, What I'm saying, the writer of Hebrews says, is you need to think about Jesus again. Consider him. He was faithful. Watch how he draws a contrast between Moses and him. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in his house. For God has been counted... um, I'm sorry, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a what? A servant. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Progressive revelation. The New Testament writer recognizes progressive revelation. But Christ, verse 6, was faithful as a what? A servant? Yes, but as a son, who is greater than the servant in the house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast our hope firmly until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, look at this, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, blah, 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 blah. I swore my wrath, they will not enter my rest. What is the writer of Hebrews doing? He does this over and over throughout chapter three and chapter four. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Does that sound familiar? Walking through the pages of the Bible that falls away from the living God. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called what? Where does he get that word today? Psalm 95. He's grabbing it just like David did and he's pulling it into his day to use. This goes on over and over. Don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Um, Drop down to chapter 4, verse 7. He again fixes, ah, we've got to back up, verse 4. And he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. See, he's kind of pulling his Bible together. The creator had a rest that he rested in, and God says they don't get it those who had hardened hearts. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter into that rest and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes, again, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. If the rest that Joshua offered them in the promised land was it, David would have never said, today you might not get his rest. So there remains, verse 9, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. We don't try to do good works to save ourselves. We rest from that, and we rest in God, the Creator, Redeemer's rest in Christ. Therefore, let us Christians be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And what a great tool God has given to us, His Word, which is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart and so forth. Listen, God's ultimate rest that is located in Jesus Christ is not missed by missing a day, by missing a year, by missing land, but now by missing Jesus. And the concern of the writer of Hebrews for persecuted Christians is not that they are missing the observance of a day. They're actually considering going back to observing a day of rest. And he's saying, why would you do that? There's a Sabbath rest that remains to enter into in Jesus. Now, that's not all the Bible says about rest. Go to Revelation 6, verse 9. the tribulation, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath and the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O oh Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Are those people in heaven aware of what's going on on earth? The idea of somebody saying, Well, I'm sure he's looking down on me right now. That's probably not what this passage is teaching. But we have to be careful in not overreacting by saying that those in heaven are not aware of anything on the earth. These are very concerned about, there needs to be some justice, God, holy and true one. When's it going to happen? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest. For a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Go to um, chapter 14, verse 13. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. And then go to chapter 22. You know, it's almost like God knew what he was doing when he put the Bible together. It's really amazing. Watch this. Do you remember where we were at in Genesis 2? God making his work. And you remember what he just made? He made a garden where man is. And God is now resting. And in that garden, there's there's a tree, right? Watch this. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, verse 1, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be what? Any curse. Remember how they were looking for somebody who would give them rest from the curse? God is taking these themes all the way back in Genesis two and he's pulling them all together at the end of the Bible. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light of lamp nor the light of the sun. I'm I'm kind of thinking that maybe that means they won't need to sleep. Because we'll have our rest. And they will reign forever and never. So as great as the salvation rest is now that we have in Jesus, in this world that we live in, as great as that is, there's even a greater expression of that rest yet to come. When we are in heaven and when he merges heaven with earth and he remakes everything. looks like by the end of the Bible, the rest that the Creator had in Genesis 2 is finally entered into. Now, what are we trying to do with this interpretation? I would hope that after walking through something like that, there would only be one main point that you would just be impressed with. Jesus Christ is awesome. If we walk away going... You know, I have a a, a fairly broad theological grasp on on sabbatical uh, issues related to the Bible. Big failure. Big failure. Because sabbatical ideas and issues exist to what? Point to Christ. But what we try to do is work from the beginning to the end, isolate one text at a time, let it speak for itself in its place in the Bible not pushing stuff from the back or from the forward of it onto it too much letting it just say what it says and just keep going and just keep going and now we walk away with a man, we need to worship Jesus Christ who's given us rest now but I want even the greater expression of his rest with him in heaven it's about the one message, Christ but we looked at a whole bunch of pieces didn't we? Okay, that's just one example of a way you can do that, and I, I would encourage you take any one of these subjects, take the subject of priest, and go for, and let each passage tell you what God reveals about it in its own time and amount. Okay, any questions as we finish up or comments? Yes, Mark. Uh-huh. with you about um, our, our covenantal friends and I love them dearly and, and we have so much in common but when they when they hold to um, when they hold to uh, when they're sabbatarians um, they're holding on to a shadow And something greater has come. And and they know something greater has come. They do. They believe it's Jesus. And they wouldn't disagree with anything that we've said here this morning in regards to Jesus being the ultimate rest. They wouldn't disagree with that. Um, But the reason that they're wanting to hang on to the Sabbath too is not... I'm going to tell you, this is my opinion, okay? There's nothing in their Bible, I think, that tells them to do that. However, they have a, a... a collection of theological truth that they hold on to very tightly a confession that says it's there and that scares me I agree with almost all that's in that confession but when you hold on to it so much that you have to because if it says there's a sabbath and it's said that for centuries and if you're going to if, if you're going to grant any controlling line of authority in that, then you have to start doing things with this to make it support that. And that's where I disagree with my dear brothers in the faith. Because I don't think this on its own, as you run the controlling line of authority through it, grants you a day. And I would say, okay, if you got the day, why aren't you doing the seven years? And where's the year of Jubilee? You know, you have to have a good answer for that. And um, and they do. I mean, have they been thinking of these things? Have they had to deal with these issues? Yeah, for a couple hundred years. So, Jerome.
3: So, would you say a person has said that says, they don't, work, they don't, they don't uh, take a break any time year long. They, they work seven days a week, 365 days a year, because they, they don't see rest as significant.
0: Um, I would say a guy's got freedom. If you want to talk to him about being a good steward of his life and his, his energy and stuff like that, have that conversation. But I don't want to make a guy feel today in Christ like the reason he needs to slow down. You can't do seven day work weeks and, and, and 80 hour work weeks uh, because well you know because God you know has rest, you know. Um, I'm not going to go there. Because I don't think that's where the Bible goes. I may I may have a whole different layer of conversation with him about, uh, let's talk about um, your time with your family. Let's talk about your ministry and the gospel that you have to people. Let's talk about motive for doing this. Let's talk about all kinds of things. There may be really good reasons for you to slow down. Stewardship of your just of your body, to glorify God with your body. Um, but I'm not going to go after him on that subject with sabbatical ideas, personally.
3: I mean, you could also just ask him, I mean, I mean like you were just doing about all the different disciplines. Like, how are you disciplining yourself in regards to God's word? You know, are you, in your busyness, are you forsaking some of these good things that the Bible tells you not to forsake? Don't forsake meeting together. Yeah. You know, as it's... it's um, the other Scott was saying about you know, meeting with the body, uh, encouraging yeah. that.
0: That's good. I would add this to it, and maybe this would be a, a helpful compliment to it. Um, God revealed that there was a wisdom in having a day off in the Old Testament. No doubt about it. It's not like now that Christ has come, it's not wise anymore. If I decide to take a day off, which I do, and I highly encourage you to do the same, um, why am I doing it? I'm not doing it because. That command is still binding on me. I'm doing it for other reasons. Uh, there's wisdom in that. There's a wisdom from God on that. But I'm not doing it because it's a. am still bound by it under, under a mosaic law. It's not repeated in that sense. It's a shadow of Christ. If I want, Like I said earlier, if I want to do that and want to honor it and treat it like it's a, a Sabbath day of ways that Christians in the past have talked about it, great. Do that. You just have to be careful to not give the impression that every Christian must be that way. And do it that way you might guys thank you so much for a big year and if you have any interest in h3 what I would like for you to do is um, maybe you can go to the um, uh, sign-in sheet back there and just write h3 by your name um, and then I will what we'll be doing we're not going to be making any decisions like in the next week or even month but by the end of July and into August, we're gonna we're gonna make that decision about you know getting the, the list of guys we're all interested, and um, you're more than welcome to add your name to that. If you think that you're in a place where you want to do build again, you're more than welcome to put write build down next to your name if you want. Okay.